Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today we're joined by GM Dan. How you doing? I'd like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? Um, I believe it was back during uh, high school, I want to say my junior year, uh, which was many eons ago at this point. Um, a friend of mine had told me about this place he had found uh, in a nearby town where he could play these things called RPGs. Being a good little sheltered kid that I was, I had no idea what he was talking about. So I joined him one day and joined in on a game of Champions, which was run off of the hero system back in the day. And somehow that applied math problem of making a character did not scare me away. And I've kind of been doing it ever since. Do you remember your first character? I do. Uh, he was a lizard man, uh, a mutant lizard man, by the way, by the name of Serpentine. I have to admit, I stole the name entirely from a villain that showed up in the ROM Space Knight comics. Shh, don't tell anybody. Well, the campaign that he showed up in was originally a superhero campaign, but like the superheroes got teleported into the past into a D&D type setting, and I was to be their guide in this world. And I was brand new to role-playing games. I had no real clue what I was doing, and, well, I kind of led them into a lot of danger. Was the GM at the time a bit ruthless? He was. Uh, not specifically to Serpentine, but to a later character in a different campaign. I had made a kind of combination of Iron Man and the Scorpion from uh, from Spider-Man. And he barely made it past the first session uh, because of a miscommunication about how a trap worked, and I just wasn't picking up on what he was saying, and I ended up sliding face-first into a pit trap. Did you go over it later to sort it out? Well, I figured out later that I was the one who made the mistake, but right when it happened, I kind of got angry, went behind the building, and started breaking bottles against the back of the building. I was... 15. I wasn't exactly emotionally mature at that point. Did those early interactions change how you would GM later on? To be honest, I'm not really sure. I would consider myself a fairly lenient GM. Actually, you know, because of that situation, I think it means that I now will make absolutely certain that somebody understands what exactly the situation is before they slide face-first into a spiked pit trap. So, yeah, I guess it did. How long did you play with that GM? I want to say about two years or so before I discovered the next gaming system that kind of grabbed me and wouldn't let go. And, well, I was a emotionally immature teenager, so of course the angst-ridden Vampire the Masquerade is what kind of grabbed me and kind of ushered me into being a GM, or, well, in that series system, you're a storyteller. So how did you first step into the role of storyteller? If I'm completely honest, I don't really remember. The game just kind of naturally came together. Some of the other players from the old superhero game liked the idea of playing as vampires. This was right, I think it was right after the revised third edition of Vampire came out. So everyone at the comic shop had gotten the little starter pamphlet, like the 30-page, this is how our world goes kind of starter thing, I guess. And they were all excited about it, and I was the only one really willing to try to run the game and kind of went from there. How long did that game last? That first game lasted uh, maybe about nine months, give or take. Um, I've run a lot of different vampire games, and not all of them, not all of them finished organically. Some of them, people just had just lost interest. People just had to leave. I believe only one vampire game that I've run has actually like ended organically. I mean. Organically is in I ended the world in that particular uh, in that particular game. Did you know anything about Vampire the Masquerade before that pamphlet came out? Not a clue. 
Not a clue. I was a good little sheltered kid. I knew next to nothing. Well, I knew absolutely nothing about RPGs. I knew next to nothing about comics. I only had the few that I had gotten from the supermarket when I was younger. Uh, that's how I stumbled onto the ROM Space Night comics. About as you know, it's about as obscure a comic as you can get. And what about the rest of the players in your game? Uh, well, they had, most of those players lived near the comic shop. I lived like a town over, so I didn't really know the place existed. They were all mostly neighborhood kids, and it was the place to go to hang out. Like, the owners of the comic shop were known as, you know, the place you go to keep the kids out of trouble. Yeah, you know, basically, I stayed out of the whole drug scene because I didn't have any money because I was buying RPG books. After Vampire, which system did you move on to? I ended up moving back into Hero System for a while, playing superhero games. For whatever reason, I got kind of burnt out on Vampire. I would come back to it again and again, back and forth. I switched through a lot of different systems. Uh, we went back into Champions for a while. Uh, that game, that game ran for a while again. It just kind of fell apart. I think the next big game I had that actually got through was the Vampire game that I had. You know, gone through Gehenna, everything had just the whole world had come to an end, kind of a kind of a deal. I don't know, I, it seems that my comfort zone is White Wolf RPGs because I'm not so much a crunch and numbers kind of person. I'm more I'm more story is more important than hard and fast rules. I kind of came into gaming backwards almost because most people D and D is their gateway game. Me. I've only recently started to run an actual game of D&D, like, as the DM. I've been in a few games as a player, but actually running it, I've only recently started that, like, I want to say, late last year. Being new to it, how do you find it compares to being the GM in the other game systems you've used? It requires a lot more prep than I'm used to. With White Wolf games, it's got a very basic kind of game system, so you can wing it a lot easier than you can with D&D. With D&D, there's a lot of hard and crunchy stats. I'm sure everyone already knows this. And it was kind of a surprise to me, just setting up game. I'm like, oh, I can head into game. I'll just, you know, write down a couple of character names and, you know, to use if someone talks to an NPC. And then I realized real fast that you need numbers, you need prep, you need, you need a lot more notes to really run D&D than you do other systems. And it's it's been a learning experience. One you plan on sticking to? Well, I mean, so, I mean, it's worked so far so good. So, yeah, I, w I would like to stick to it. Uh, and I figured it will probably help my other games in the future. Um, I do have a current vampire game kind of on hold. And this may help keep things a little more coherent, if, if that's the right word. Uh, a lot more continuity is what I'm going for with the new game. Seems like you've had a fairly broad spectrum of settings from superhero, vampire, uh, now fantasy. Do you have a preferred setting? I'd have to say my preferred setting for an RPG would have to be pretty much nothing I've run before, post-apocalyptic. Something about the post-apocalypse setting just speaks to me. I know personally I'd do very badly in the post-apocalypse. I'd be dead inside a week. But just that world, like the Mad Max kind of world, the Fallout world, that kind of stuff, I just the after-the-end kind of thing just speaks to me. I've tried to run a game set in the post-apocalypse uh, using the Besom system, Big Eyes, Small Mouth, uh, and specifically the Hot Rods and Gun Bunnies expansion. Uh, that game, I was able to run it for a short time in college, but it just never really took off. And what about participating in as a player? Well, uh, among my group, I'm generally the, the GM. Uh, occasionally, one of my players will take over and let me be a player for a little while. But uh, as for games that I enjoy playing in, I mean, give me a decent world and I can come up with just about anything for it. Uh, one of my players is currently like running a, a Star Wars system. And I play a Deveronian bounty hunter that, I'm not going to lie, he, his personality pops into my head unbidden on many occasions throughout the day. Do you have a favorite character that you've played as? 
Uh, favorite character that I've played as? Um, Across all the years and systems? Well, I do have, I guess you'd call him a, a pet PC uh, that has shown up in a lot of the games that I've run in different versions. Uh, back when I first started playing in Vampire, because I had, there was what I, I was kind of not telling the truth before. There was one other person who would run Vampire back in the day. And I played a character whose name I directly stole from the Legacy of Cain series. A character named Raziel was a kind of a, kind of a hybrid gargoyle demon type character. Again, I was an angsty teenager. But that particular character I've had show up in games that I've run as like a background character or like a villain or just in some way or some way, shape, or form has shown up here and there. And uh problem is storyline, he's not really that well fleshed out. He's just, you know, a cool looking character. But he seems to be my favorite. He's the one that's stuck in my mind. Have your players started looking for him in games? They have in the past. Uh one of his um one of his traits was that he would smoke clove cigarettes. So certain of my players who've been with me for a long time know that if I say, you know, make me a spot check, you know, or perception check, and he'll, and I'll go, do you smell cloves? The rest of them will go, oh crap, not him. I haven't really used him much lately. Like he, he hasn't shown up in the D and D game, and I'm not sure that he would. But you know, that kind of thing has shown up. I'll get that reaction from my longtime players. So you said that there's a lot more prep work for D&D in terms of the actual encounters. Yes. How comfortable are you with creating NPCs and plot hooks on the fly? Well, I've had a lot of practice um, coming up with NPCs and ideas on the fly most of the time. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is a DM trick that most DMs know. You, if you let your players talk amongst themselves and become paranoid. Usually the ideas that they come up with, the you know conspiracies they come up with, are generally better than what you came up with, and you just kind of sit back and go, yes, yes, the Vizier was behind all of it, kind of a deal. I've actually found that some of the best sessions that I've ever run have been made up completely off the top of my head. I've tried to go into game sessions with like a hard and fast idea of what's going to happen that session. And that almost never works out, because as all GMs know, your players will take a hard left away from whatever you plan that they're going to do or what you think they're going to do. Have you had any NPCs that you tried to come up with on the spot that you instantly regretted? I've had a few uh, that have have popped up. I'd have to say the one I've most recently regretted was an elderly uh, orchard manager that showed up in the D&D game and was asking the players to investigate what happened to his farm. He said a bunch of goblins had come in in the middle of the night and like run his family off, and he was asking them for help. And I gave him the generic old man voice, which my players kind of started asking him more questions than was necessary, and I had to keep going with the, well, see, I don't know, kind of voice for a lot longer than I wanted to. And by the end of that session, I'm walking out going, oh, God, my throat. What is the best NPC you've come up with on the spot? The best NPC I've come up with on the spot was in Vampire. He was a gargoyle bodyguard by the name of Lennox. Lennox was probably the best happy accident I've ever come up with. He started life as just a scribble on the back of the Tremere player's character sheet that he had. He had dots in Retainer, which, if you're not familiar with Vampire, uh, Retainer is someone you either pay or you have blood bound to your service. Could be a bodyguard, butler, whatever else. This particular character was a bodyguard. He was a gargoyle and just wrote down his name was Lennox. Lennox somehow be ended up becoming better loved than the character he was there to protect. And when that player eventually left, there were other players wouldn't let Lennox go with him. They adopt, adopted him and kept him around. Lennox, personality-wise, ended up being essentially Hellboy. And this was years before I even knew that Hellboy existed. So when I saw that movie, I just sat there and went, that's Hellboy. That is exactly what, that, that, that's Lennox. Sorry, wrong word. That's Lennox. That's exactly what I was going for. 
and Lennox ended up becoming a group favorite. He was in the game that ended up... Um, he showed up again later in the vampire game that ended up where I ended up ending the world. And there was a big plot point with Lennox, because, again, if you're not familiar with it, in the vampire world, gargoyles are not a natural bloodline. They're created from using several different species or clans of vampire and mixing them together and making them into this thing. In that game that I had run, I had given the players um, an opportunity to redeem themselves. In Vampire, the whole, you know, Cain and Abel God thing is all very much real. And during Gehenna, the end of the world, God puts down, well, the version I was using anyway, God puts down a challenge that a vampire can redeem themselves and regain their mortal lives if they pass a test. This particular test was not to diablerize other vampires. Diablery is where you drain the soul of another vampire. In order to reclaim their own power, if they resist that urge, they have a chance of becoming human again, going back to their human lives. The thing with Lennox, Lennox didn't have a human life to go back to. He was created. So there was this whole thing among the players trying to figure out what could possibly be done. Can Lennox be saved? And Lennox himself was going through an existential meltdown, like, I don't have a life to go back to, why am I still fighting, kind of thing. And by the end of the game, it ended up being that, true, Lennox, even being a good person, didn't have a life to go back to. So when the end came, he died along with the rest of the, of the characters. Uh, from that game, I believe I had a total of eight players, and literally only two of them survived the end. They, they were the only two that, that passed the test. And when Lennox was reduced to ash at the end of that session, my players, their actual tears shed because he had died. Did you have a decompression time after the game? I did. Uh, we didn't have game for, I want to say, a couple of weeks after that because it was just thing I'd gone completely over the top with that vampire game, and I think we're all a little burnt on gaming, so we, we all took a couple of weeks to just kind of decompress. For the characters that had died during the end, did they feel that they had agency in that death? I'd like to think they did. Um, I explained what, what the deal was, and they had known from the beginning, uh, well, from the beginning of the end, there was a, like, preacher who showed up and was explaining, you know, that the reason we're losing our powers is because God is angry. He is trying to, he's trying to remove the stain of vampirism from the world. Um, the, this, this loss of power is, is our retribution. Do not try to fight it. And some players took that to heart, some didn't, and that ended up, you know, they ended up, at the end of it, I, I told them, it's like, you, you were told from the beginning not to, uh, not to, not to push it, I guess is the phrase I was going for. So, I don't believe any of the players were actively angry that their characters had died, but, uh, like, they, it was the whole, okay, I died and this was, this was part of, this was part of the story. I was told from the start, you know, this is, this is what happened. In general, do you try to give your players a way out of character death? Or do you feel that there are times where it's organic and just can't be avoided? There are definitely times where it's organic and it can't be avoided. And after my experience of sliding face first onto a spike, I do try to, as I said before, I do try to make sure everyone knows exactly what's going on. Um, one particular situation comes to mind in one of the superhero games I had run. Uh, one of my players had a kind of... I think he was kind of like Cyborg from the DC Comics. Uh, his character, as well as the other heroes, were fighting villains in an office that they had been lured to. And this character uh, went to charge one of the villains who was standing near the plate glass windows, they were up on like the 40th floor. He charged after one of the villains, he rolled his dice, he botched his roll, my villain rolled his rolled his dodge check, he crit, so the villain literally stepped to the side and the hero ran face first into the plate glass because he was a cyborg and so heavy, smashed right through it and started to fall. 
I kind of froze time while he was falling and tried to come up with ways to save him because that kind of a fall, that kind of a character, he couldn't fly, didn't have teleportation, anything like that. He was going to die. Um, I had told him that there was another hero in the area, one a flyer, who could potentially have tried to catch him. And my player actually said to me, like, look, legitimately, I weigh half a ton. Unless that guy's got super strength, which I don't think he does, and he didn't. If he tries to catch me, I'm just going to wrench his arms out of the socket and he'll come down with me. And, like, my player actually fought me on trying to save him, which I thought ended up being kind of a cool way to go. The character death ended up... It wasn't even, like, a major confrontation that, that it happened. It was kind of that, what kind of meaningless death is this? And my player uh, thought it was one of the coolest things that had happened to his characters. Just, it's just something that happened. He very happily rolled up a new character, and we continued on after that. But there was this ongoing, um, this ongoing thing about how uh, the hero sacrificed himself for ultimately no good reason. Again, it was one of those, the dice d dictated it. I tried to give him a way out, and you know, he just said, no, realistically, it wouldn't have happened. So he fell 40 stories, his cybernetic body punched through the street, and straight down into the sub-sewer under the subway, because he was that dense. Would you say that's the most spectacular character death you've had from a player? I would say that's the most, like, spectacle type of one, like, the most over-the-top. Uh, but the, I want to say the best character death I've had that's shown up in any of my games was actually done by my little sister. We were playing a White Wolf system, a game called Scion. You do not actually play small cars. You play as the sons and daughters of the gods. Pick your pantheon, Greek, Aztec, uh, Roman, Norse, just whatever. Um, my sister was playing a scion of the Japanese goddess of death. Uh, no, god of death, sorry. It was, there's two of them. At least in that game system. I, the whole actual how the pantheons work is way more complicated than the game put out, but they did their best bet. Anyway, I was running a storyline from the books uh, where the players had to stop a certain god... Uh, one played by Tom Hiddleston in a lot of movies now, from getting a hold of this powerful relic and thus becoming so powerful he could take over both you know, the gods and the titans and just become the most powerful thing. The relic he was trying to get was called the Black Feather Shroud. It was something that just allowed untold amount of power in the wrong hands. But the shroud could also be destroyed if you pulled it over your shoulders and tore it apart from the inside, you would destroy the shroud and yourself. You would erase yourself completely from existence. During the big climactic fight trying to get a hold of this relic, my sister, realizing things were going bad, they were up against Loki himself, took the cloak, she said, I pull it over myself and I tear it apart from the inside. And the whole table just kind of stopped, turned and looked at her and went, Really? She goes, yeah, really, I'm tearing this thing apart. He's not getting it. So she does that, tears it apart, tears it apart. The whole situation kind of resets itself because her character had removed herself entirely from, from reality. The characters couldn't even remember her and her sacrifice for it, which I think was probably one of the most, I guess, heart-wrenching things that a, that a player character can do because one thing you want to know, what it want to be, is remembered for what you've done. And she sacrificed herself straight up just and just for the greater good of all of humanity. And I just thought that was a really cool moment. Have you had any moments at the gaming table where things got a little heated? It was Legend of the Five Rings. Um, I was playing a character who was not exactly the most honorable person. Um, and I was among a bunch of samurai who were from more honorable clans, and it became something of an issue for the other players, to the point where I was actually challenged to a duel, which I promptly lost because I'm not a duelist, and I think that kind of soured me to the uh, L5R experience after that. Um, aside from that, I don't think there's ever been really, like, 
heated, angry arguments. I mean, except over how rules actually go, but that happens in every game. And generally, you can take the book out and say, no, this is how it goes. Although I have run into a few more rules debates in D&D than I have in other systems. Um, as again, my, as, I, as again, my comfort zone is more vampire, where most of the rules that, uh, like arguments kind of come down to the storyteller says it, so it happened. Now shut up and keep playing. If you were the GM in the situation where things were getting heated in L5R, how would you have handled it now? Uh, now, I think I would have called for uh, a station break. Just said, okay, everybody, we're going to pause for a minute. You in your corner, you in your corner. Let's go outside, cool off, and let's talk about this like grown-ups, because we're all here to have fun. And yelling at each other, in my opinion, isn't really fun. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure this, you know, if, if arguments happen in game, like in character, that's one thing. If people are actively getting mad at each other at the table, that's an entirely different thing. And I like to try to nip that in the bud as much as I can. Have you ever ended a session early? I have, um, for several different reasons. Usually, um, my group, my uh, gaming group only, we only meet once a week and there's, you know, a lot of us, so sometimes we get kind of talking amongst ourselves and the game just kind of, interest in the game just kind of falls away. So we have ended game early before because people are too distracted or I've gotten too distracted or I've had a really bad day at work and I'm just not feeling it kind of thing. Um, I don't think we've ever had to call a session early due to anger or fighting, uh, which I'm very much grateful for. Um, the majority of my players are, well, that's not fair because I'm going to make them listen to this. I'm not going to say the majority of my players are mature. All of my players are mature. But from time to time, we can all be a little, I guess, catty is the way to go. Uh, but as I said, it's never gotten so bad we've had to stop a game early. So the game you're running now, is that in 5th edition? Uh, actually, it's in 3.5, uh, primarily because those are the books I had to hand. Uh, I don't have any of the 5th edition books yet. Has the announcement of the online tools for 5th edition caught your interest at all, or would you rather stick with what you have now? Uh, the online tools for D&D have very much caught my interest. Um, I tend to run uh, run game, instead of having a screen, I generally have a laptop or a tablet in front of me. That's uh, Currently, I'm running the players through the old 3.0 module, the Sunless Citadel, modified because, you know, 3.0 3 to 3.5. And having that on the tablet, instead of having to use, you know, the laptop trackpad and everything has made life a lot easier. If I could have something like, um, trying to, uh, it's not, it's not Hero Forge. That's the miniatures. There's a program out for Pathfinder that lets you have your particular characters and you can apply different conditions and it'll change your stats as is. You don't have to do the math yourself. If I could have something like that for 3.5, that would be incredible. Um, the online tools that I've seen for, um, for fifth edition look to be very similar to that. Uh, if I can get a hold of the books, and if the translation isn't too hard, I may move us over to 5th edition. Um, again, I, as I understand it, 5th edition is, kind of simplifies the rules a bit, and I do have some players in my group that are not hardcore RPG fans, so if I can make the, make the transition a little bit easier for some of my players, I will do that, you know, I'll do that immediately. Do you require your players to also buy books, or have you bought all these supplies? I generally buy all the supplies myself. Um, it can When we go around leveling up at the table, only having two books at the table can slow things down a little bit, but I'm not going to say, you all need to go and buy this $50 book if we want to play this game, because I just, I just don't think that's fair. I admit I have a lot of different RPG systems that I've never really gotten a chance to run, but I've gotten them because they intrigued me kind of thing. For example, one of the systems I have is called uh, Fireborn. It's a really unique system in itself where the characters are playing uh, resurrected dragons. 
And it's a really neat system, but expecting my players to go out and drop 50 bucks on an obscure system that we may or may not actually continue to play, I don't think, I don't think it's fair. So I'll, I run everyone through character creation. I'll do all of that stuff on my own. I'd rather have a game go smoothly uh, with a few, say, hiccups during character creation than have to uh, then basically put some of my friends into the poorhouse when it comes to RPG manuals and books. Do you feel that once there has been a certain amount of time elapsed in games run that there should be some sort of splitting of the cost? Or do you feel that as a GM, the burden is on you? I would have to say I'm about 50-50 on that. Um, if a game's been running for a good long time, like the vampire game that I ran back in the day, that game went on for three and a half, almost four years. So after a while if the players wanted to get a hold of their own books so they can look up what the next level of their disciplines are going to be instead of having to take my books, I wouldn't have said no to that. But again, I also don't want to, you know, put undue cost onto people. You know, I might, this is the game that I want to run. I feel like it's on me to be able to provide as much of that as I can. If they want to get the books, I won't say no. It's going to make life easier, but you know, and generally, I that's a tough question, honestly. Um, I want to say, for the most part, it comes down to the to the GM uh, to kind of take on that burden themselves, because they're the ones that have to do the... Well, could also be considered not fair, because they have to do the majority of the work. Yeah, I gotta say, I don't think I really have a good answer for that. Well, there may not be a good answer for that. Good point. Is there any system where you bought the materials and for one reason or another the game just didn't come together and you've always regretted it? Um, there have been several. Um, looking over at my RPG shelf right now, um, I have, again, these are mostly White Wolf products. I have Demon the Fallen, which never came through. I have Werewolf the Apocalypse and I have Werewolf the Forsaken, that's the new version of it. Neither of those really worked out. I'm not really a werewolf GM when you come down to it. Uh, Wraith the Oblivion, which is probably the most depressing RPG ever. Uh, that never quite worked out. And most recently, a game that I got a hold of the materials for and tried to play and it just didn't really work out was one set in the Mass Effect universe. Uh, I am a massive, massive fan of the Mass Effect universe. In fact, I have the new game sitting on my PS4 behind me, and as soon as this is done, I'm going to boot it back up. I tried to uh, run a game set right after the third game, and my players were down for it. They had all these ideas. We got a hold of the materials. We got the character sheets. We made the characters, and we started to play the first session, and just for whatever reason, it just didn't work, I guess, in RPG settings or Whatever it is, it just didn't quite pan out. So I kind of regret that because I, I love the world, but I guess it's like I felt I couldn't do it justice, maybe. I don't know. Not really sure how that game fell apart. When you're running a new game, do you prefer starting with adventures out of the book? When you are running a new game, do you think it's best to go straight out of the book for the adventure hook? Yes, to a point. Um, that's kind of what I'm doing right now with D&D. The thing with D&D, uh, with all the modules and adventure paths that they have, actually makes my life a little bit easier. That I, you know, My adjustment into this system is a little bit easier. I can make modifications to certain systems or certain... Uh, certain dungeons, or even if I don't want to use the storyline to it, I just cannibalize the dungeon map for it. That makes the game run a little bit easier, I believe. With other systems, it's kind of hard to run straight out of the book. Like, something like Champions or Hero System, there's no one specific setting to run straight from the book. You kind of have to make it up as you go. Yeah, like Besom's the same way. So yeah, uh, for the for the beginning anyway. Running out of the book is probably the easiest way to go. That's what I ended up doing with Scion. Um, I used the published uh, published story in the books. I quickly veered off from it, but 
I use the established story in the book t- books to get us a start, to get us, you know, a foothold in the world. Would you say those other systems not having a starter adventure in the book was a hindrance? Or did they force you to think on your feet? I would say a little of both. It could be a little, a bit of a hindrance that there's no real like handholds for the players to have right from the get-go to know like what they're going walking into. But also causing the GM to have to think on their feet is a good thing because it keeps us, I mean, it keeps us honest. Really, uh, keeps us um, able to more able to deal with weird situations that pop up, more able to improvise uh, when the situation warrants which most of the time, uh, with my players anyway, I have to improvise a lot, because as I said before, they tend to take a hard left from whatever I thought they were going to do. In the 3-5 game you're running right now, have you had to steer them away from a course of action based on how it would affect the in-book adventure? I haven't quite yet. Uh, we are still fairly early in the game. They're at level three at this point. So they haven't really gotten to a point where they can severely uh, send things off the rails. Um, and to be honest, if they do send things off the rails, I'm prepared to just make it up on the fly, figure it out as we go. I'm totally fine with doing that. Uh, but as I said, in the meantime, at level three, they haven't really been able to do it yet. I know a lot of GMs will try to have a yes and approach. Do you have a limit to what you will yes and? I mean, yes. Um, yes and. I tend to give a little too much information as a GM, I think, because uh, sometimes, like, if they miss uh, if they miss a character, say the enemy's got, like, an 18 AC and they just rolled a 17, I'm like, oh, you are so close, and I know that kind of gives it away that, hey, guess what? He's got an 18 AC. Um, the Again, my players are generally pretty good about trying to go overboard with things. Um, I remember I had a player a long time ago, and I don't think he's going to listen to this, so I'm not really afraid for my, uh, for my safety. While I was running uh, a vampire game, I made the questionable choice of opening it to all the different kinds of characters from the vampire world. Like, if you wanted to play a werewolf, you could. If you wanted to play um, a Macaulay, that's the were-crocodiles, which in reality were just dinosaurs. If you wanted to be one of those, you could. And I opened it up to homebrew things as well, which turned out to not be the greatest idea, because I had a player come to me with a character concept for a were-horse which was strange. I guess he just wanted to be a centaur or something. And he also came to me with homebrew stats that let him regain willpower points basically any time he did anything. So at that point, I had to do had to put down a hard and fast, you know what, no, this is broken. This is not going to work. I can't allow this to go through. But for the most part, like even, if, even in my 3-5 game right now, if someone found a homebrew class online, it's like, show me a printout of it or give me a link to it, if it if it's not overly broken, then sure, yeah, it's not in the main rules, but we can play around with it. We can do something with it. Um, with my current gaming group, as I said, they're pretty good with that. I haven't had to put like I haven't had to put my foot down quite yet. If you could homebrew a character class for your game, what would you want to homebrew? Well, again, I haven't dug too deep into it, but I've heard. I've heard good things about the witch class from Pathfinder, which, again, since Pathfinder is very much similar to 3.5, I think it could translate over, but just what I've learned about the witch, um, I would love to carry over that into 3.5. I have to say, the only experience I have with homebrewing a specific class was actually with a D20 modern game, and it was uh, for like a like a supernatural hacker kind of class. And thinking back on it now, it was probably stupid and broken and overblown, but I just kind of love the idea of a particular character metabolizing energy drinks in a different way to kind of overclock their own body kind of deal. Although I guess that's kind of similar to the Drunken Master Prestige class from 3.5, come to think of it. 
just with energy drinks instead of alcohol. So, yeah, I mean, anything that I could homebrew, I think someone's already done, to be honest. Do you do anything during the game to increase the atmosphere and immersion? I try to have uh, some, well, if I can, I try to have uh, background music playing that's appropriate. Um, I've gotten a hold of the Sirenscape app, but uh, that can be a little little tricky to run in the middle of game while I'm trying to keep everyone uh, focused. And for whatever reason, like where we play, I'm kind of in a dead zone for my cell phone, so I can't really get it to play that well. Um, I have in the past made um, made journals for specific characters, and I've aged them, you know, stomped on them, you know, made them look like they've been beaten up kind of deal, singed the edges uh, for props that way. I remember one specific thing I did for one of my early, early vampire games. Um, there was a clue that the players had found. It was a note written from the main bad guy to the character I mentioned before, Raziel, and the note had been torn up and shoved into an envelope. Again, don't ask me why. I was a kid. Shoved into an envelope and thrown out. I actually wrote up the note, tore it up, put it in the envelope, smashed up, you know, got it all beaten up so it looked like it had been in the trash, and I tossed the envelope on the table and let them put it together jigsaw puzzle style. And I remember one of the greatest moments uh, during that game anyway uh, was... Uh, where we were playing was in the back room of this comic shop. And I remember the day that we were playing, it was very windy outside. So all the players were gathered around the table, putting all the pieces of this torn-up note together. And while they were doing that, I just kind of wandered to the back door of the building, opened the door, let the breeze come in, and just blew all the papers, all the little pieces of paper all over the room. And one of my players, uh, we call him Dark Mark, he... Uh, dove across the table to try to save some of the papers, and seeing a 40-plus-year-old biker dive across a table just to try to save some silly RPG plot prop was one of the most awesome things I've seen ever in RPGs. If you could have a single prop from all of the systems that you've run or been a part of, regardless of how feasible it is in terms of reality, what would it be? Um, I think I'd have to go with the jetpack that my current Star Wars character has, just because it's a jetpack. Who doesn't want a jetpack? That's fair. We're going to start wrapping up, but before we do, I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire, pioneered by Bernal Pivo. What is your favorite word? Shenanigans. There's just a fun connotation to the word. What is your least favorite word? I'm going to have to be boring and say moist, because, again, it's got a bad connotation to it. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I would have to say the look on my players' faces when I manage to pull something over on them. Uh, it makes makes all that I've done for the game feel worthwhile. And it's just one of the greatest feelings, and it just energizes me for any further games from there. Can you recall the last thing that happened that got that response? The most recent one I can't really think of off the top of my head, but I do remember one while back. I was running a system, running a game in the Serenity system, which is set in the Firefly universe, and I used a particular character from the show, Saffron or Yolanda or Bridget or who, she had many names. Uh, I had her show up, and as the players slowly figured out who I was running, the 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 looks on their faces as we went around the table as it slowly dawned on everyone and they went oh Christ not her was one of those one of those great moments in GMing what turns you off inattention um, I know I know people have their own their own issues their own problems when it comes to you know day day-to-day -day life but when it's 
Like, when it's game time, it's game time. And I know I'm not perfect with that either. I get very easily distracted. But when everyone's focused and, like, one person is just kind of distracted or doing something, I just kind of want to say, hey, guys, focus up. Let's, let's, let's have game. Have you started to cap the session time limit? Or is it session by session? We kind of have a hard limit uh, on our on our sessions. Uh, a lot of us work weird hours, so we don't generally start game until about seven o'clock, seven thirty, and we have like a hard end time of about ten o'clock. Uh, one of like two of my players have a very small child, and like less than a year old. And uh, one of my other players, her daughter, comes to game every other week, and she's about nine. So ten o'clock is really kind of the the end that we can get to. Um, and that's usually where we end games. So our sessions don't generally last very long, so I try to keep as much packed into them as I can. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Oh, fuck, generally. Uh, that's one of my favorites. Uh, it's a word that can be used as an entire sentence, and it can mean so many things coming from your players. Hopefully the nine-year-old has earmuffs. She she listens to certain YouTube uh, YouTube people, so uh, our language is generally not as, not any worse than theirs. What sound or noise do you love? That moment of discovery when your players catch on to something that that you're doing. Not quite the whole. Not like I said before when you pull something over on them, but when things click together and they have that oh kind of moment. I love that because that's. Those are the moments I love in any books I read, any vi- any games I play, movies I watch. When the thing when it clicks together for me, that's the moment of discovery, and it makes me feel good that I can have that I can. Insp- I don't know if "inspire" is the right word, but I can inspire that in someone else. What sound or noise do you hate? The sound of open mouth chewing. If that has happened around me, then there's a one hundred percent chance I've fantasized about your death. Have any player characters at an early end due to open mouth chewing? Not yet, um, but I know if <laughs> I'm going to have my players listen to this, and there might be one in the future. What game system would you like to attempt? There is a game system that I have the starter PDF for uh, right now called Chthonian Highways. It is basically a mashup of Mad Max and Call of Cthulhu, where the end of the world came about because the Great Old Ones came back. And it's just a brilliant mashup of the two genres, and I absolutely love them both. Uh, Unfortunately, most of my players are not huge into post-apocalypse, so I've been trying to figure out a way to run something like this, because it just intrigues me so much. What game system would you not like to attempt? Honestly, I, I'm willing to give any system a try. I guess, um, is it called Lethal or is it called Fatal with the really messed up gender politics in it? I don't think I'd want to give that one a try just because of the, the I guess, reputation that it has. Um, I'd like to get a, I'd like to get a hold of a copy of it just to see how bad it really is, but I don't think I'd ever want to try it. When your game concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? Wow, that was cool. Have you ever run any online games? I have not. Um, I do have uh, access to Tabletop Simulator, and I have a Roll20 account, but I've never really done online games. Um... I I mostly prefer to the face-to-face kind of thing, so I can gauge a reaction a player's having. Uh, when it's online, it can be a little... I don't know if awkward's the right word, but it just doesn't feel the same to me. Impersonal? I think that would be the right word, yes. And finally, if you could travel back in time to watch one person sneeze, who would it be? Um, to what? Travel back in time to watch one person sneeze. Um, 
that one caught me off guard. I would say Charlie Chaplin, because he'd probably play it up. Is there somewhere the insiders can follow you? I'm not really... I don't have a Twitter, uh, and my Facebook is just my general Facebook. I do have a... Uh, Tumblr page that I admit I don't do a whole lot with. Uh, it's, let me get to the link to it. It is um, Mr. Blackrock13, all one word. Uh, Mr. is MR uh, at .tumblr.com. Uh, again, I don't really do too much with it. It's mostly me reblogging things from other people. One thing I do tend to reblog on my page is uh, a good friend of mine's uh, Tumblr page. Uh, she goes by the handle of LZ3. She is a phenomenal artist, and she is one of my very, very good friends, and I want to make sure that more people get to see what she can do and try to spread it around because she deserves to have more people know, know about her. Thanks for joining us today. Good to be here. Feel free to follow the show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. Inside the Master's Studio is an Audio Entropy original. Head on over to AudioEntropy.com for other podcasts like War and Beast, A Beast Wars Rewatch, Let Me Tell You About Homestuck, and All Along the Watchtower, A Journey Through the DC Animated Universe. Or if you're a Mass Effect fan, head to the LeviathanFiles.wordpress.com for an actual play podcast set in the Mass Effect universe. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, always be willing to allow your players to fail. You might be surprised how their characters and the story come to life in the face of hardship. <laughs>